You're listening to Penguin, live at the London Palladium, showcasing some of the wonderful, diverse voices from across the Penguin Random House group. Here's our compare, Emily Maitlis. Now, finding your voice can take a lot of practice, especially if you're trying to win an argument. According to our next author, cats rank amongst the world's top negotiators. They get humans to do what they want, when they want. So if you could learn to persuade a cat to do what you wanted, then any human, colleague, friend, boss, partner, even your most cantankerous relative would bow to your magic. Here to teach us all how to do it with tips from his book, How to Argue with a Cat, of course. Please welcome to the stage, Jay Heinrichs. So I have an experiment I'd like to conduct with all of you, partly because I know how you British people are famous for your public displays of affection, right? <laughs> so that's what we're going to do. I want you to close your eyes. Close them. I could tell some of you aren't closing your eyes yet, so I'm just going to wait. Now imagine what you're about to have for dinner tonight. Smell it, taste it. Now, if you want to argue like a cat, you need to understand the, sound, the sound of smell and the smell of smell. Now, everybody, go like this. Mmm. Just do it. That wasn't loud enough. Mmm. Mmm. What do you think we're doing? We're purring. <laughs> now, let's take it a little farther. You can open your eyes. Lean in toward each other, the person next to you and do it again. <laughs> Come on. Purr. Come on, people, this is serious. Purr. Don't you feel the love when you do that? All right, we're still experimenting here. So now lean in again toward each other and Sniff the other person. <laughs> Is somebody, good, good. Now, gently lick them on the back of their back. Some of you are not ever going to do this, so maybe we won't. We're humans. So we have to accept the fact that we're not quite as good at this persuasion thing as cats are. But we can purr, not necessarily like cats, though that's kind of awesome what you just did, but like humans. So let me explain. For the past 20 years, I've been studying the ancient art of rhetoric. It's the art of influence. It's the art of getting along with one another. Rhetoric persuasion has built civilizations, saved marriages, and allowed cats to become the masters of our households. I wrote a book called Thank You for Arguing, which you publish, thank you. It's a New York Times bestseller. But people started asking me for a simpler introduction to the art of persuasion. And I found that people were getting hung up on some things that don't bother cats at all. Things like words logic, and facts. Now, most persuasion, though, happens more subtly with 
voice and gesture and licking the back of your partner's neck. <laughs> and cats prove this. If you own a cat, you know this. They can persuade us to do anything without saying a word. So a purr, what does a purr do? It conveys three things. One, I like being with you. Secondly, do more of what I want you to do. And then thirdly, most importantly, purring makes me, the cat, feel better, which makes you more tolerable to me. When I purr, I can stand you, possibly even like you, even if I'm a cat. When you're doing something wrong, a cat can correct you through purring and little body shifts. You know what I'm talking about if you own a cat. It's more effective doing it this way than, say, scratching you or biting you, or in a human's case, directly arguing with words. I call the human part of this art agreeability. It's the art of arguing without appearing to argue. So I'm going to show you how to argue like a human. And I want you to think about this tonight at dinner in between licking each other. <laughs> so here's how to purr like a human. When someone disagrees with you, nod your head. Show interest. Don't push back. Banish the word but from your vocabulary. Say and instead. It totally works. Ask questions. And this is something confirmed by neuroscience. When you ask questions instead of pushing back in an argument, you actually can moderate the other person's opinion and sow some doubt in their own head, which is awesome. <laughs> Add to the conversation, gradually steering it toward your own point of view. So at dinner, tonight, you know what to do. You should purr when my friends at Penguin, Kate and Chloe, are at dinner. They want to know that other Penguin people are doing their thing, so they want to hear you purr. They want to see your heads nod. We all want to see love beams coming out of your eyes. You know, cats really do this. Go ahead and talk Brexit. Go ahead and talk Trump. Say how awesome it would be if every kindergarten teacher in America were well-armed. <laughs> but keep smiling when you do it. Think purring. You're on your way, just a little, of gaining the power of a cat. And by doing this, purring, sending love beams out of your eyes, even what your partner is saying is absolutely idiotic, by purring like a cat and like a human, you'll at least save dinner. You might save a relationship and just possibly, please do this, you'll be saving all of humanity. <laughs> That's what cats are all about. Thank you. We've come to the penultimate section of our show. It can be a big responsibility to give a voice to victims and people who can't speak for themselves. And our next guest has grappled with this throughout his distinguished writing career. Joining me now is one of our greatest thriller writers, having sold over 100 million books worldwide. Please welcome Lee Child. It is extraordinary, Lee, to um, be in a position where you can give people a voice right on behalf of victims. And I wonder how, how that feels, how you came to that. 
Well, it feels pretty good. And, but first of all, let me just say, uh, you know, you very kindly mentioned 100 million books. I've sold, in my lifetime, I've sold 22 books to one a year to Penguin Random House. <laughs> and if they've managed to set, shift multiple copies of each one, that is their achievement, not mine. And I'm very grateful to them for it, believe me. Are all the authors this humble? <laughs> And I, in a funny way, yeah, I mean, the victims, these are crime novels, obviously, yeah. and um, in a crime novel, as opposed to real life, where nothing really works out like it should, uh, you know what it's like if your house is burgled, they're never going to find the guys, you're never going to get your stuff back. If your car is stolen, you'll never see it again. Right. Um, life is, is lived with this buzz of dissatisfaction and frustration. Mm. And so we love a crime novel because you bet they're going to find the guys. Um, you're going to get your stuff back. And if it's a Reacher book, the bad guys are going to get shot in the head. <laughs> so that's a tremendous, a tremendous source of satisfaction. Uh, but really, really, I think the voice, honestly, the voice that I'm giving, I think, is the voice of the reader because nobody is more cynical than me, nobody is more realistic than me, but I think it is still realistic to say that most people most of the time are decent folk who, are, who want to do the right thing. They're full of kindness and goodwill. They want to do the decent thing, but usually they can't. Yeah. Um, you know what it's like if you're, if you're on the bus home at night and you see some guy slap his girlfriend. What do you want to do? You want to do something about that, obviously, but you can't because you are physically intimidated or you are incapable of it. Or There's a million reasons why you're really not going to do anything about it. And that upsets people. It frustrates people. They hate that powerlessness. And so vicariously through Reacher, yeah, they're going to stride down the aisle of the bus and they're going to hold the guy out by the collar. So he is, your, he is our alter ego. Yeah, He's really landing the punch that we know we wouldn't do. Yeah, that you want to do, but you can't. Yeah. I really think that's it. And can we talk a little bit about past tense? Um, it's, it starts, it's very curious, it starts with, um, with Jack sort of going past a, a pawnbroker's. Uh. Well, I, it starts with a failed relationship, which sounds sort of perfect as well, doesn't it? Cause yeah, all relationships are failed. This is the man <laughs> yeah. with sort of no digital footprint, yeah. no sort of connection to the world. I wonder how important that is. Well, I mean, that's really super important in two ways. I mean, the, the porn uh, broker one is, is the midnight line. Mm. Uh, past tense, I can't tell you what it's about because I haven't finished it yet. I, I have no <laughs> idea. I'll, I don't know what happens. And then when I finished it, I'll need Marianne Velmans, my editor, to read it to tell me what it's what about. It's about yeah. But um, yeah, the midnight line, it starts with the, uh, the woman. And that's Reach's perpetual problem. He loves intelligent, smart women. Uh, but, of course, the more intelligent and the more smart the woman, the quicker they realize this ain't going to work. Right. Um, you know, it's fun for 48 hours. Terrific. And after that, no future. So off she goes. He's left alone. And he walks, he gets on the bus, and the bus stops for a toilet break. And he walks past a pawnbroker. And in the window, there's a usual pile of junk, including class rings, which are a big thing in America. If you, when you graduate high school, you get a big gaudy ring. Uh, all of that stuff. And it actually began at West Point, which is the military academy. They're the first people that ever had class rings. And sure enough, in this pawnbroker, in the middle of nowhere, is a West Point class ring, 2005. And it's tiny. Uh, so therefore, it's a woman cadet. 
And it's not a great year to graduate 2005, because immediately you would go to Iraq or Afghanistan. And why on earth would anybody who has survived four years of West Point would then pawn their ring? It's inconceivable. So Richard knows, here's a woman in trouble. Um, he's got nothing better to do, so he buys the ring mm. and demands the provenance. Where did this ring come from? And the pawnbroker says, what is this, Sotheby's? And Richard says, you better tell me who you got it from. And he does eventually, and then it's a question, Richard traces it back and back and back until he finds the original owner. And you look, at, and it's, it's, it's very contemporary in a sense that you're looking at um, US military veterans, mm -hmm. scars, the trauma, um, their opioid dependencies as well. Was that something that you, did that come from, I guess, real life that you wanted to sort of enter into? It, yeah, it did. And it was unusual for me because I'm not really an issues writer. Right. You know, I'm not the sort of guy that is ripped from the headlines. Um, so it was unusual that it was in the news mm -hmm. as well. And it was really because I was, I was musing about how to solve these big problems. Mm -hmm. And America is spectacularly bad at solving these big problems because they will not necessarily face the facts because some of the facts are, are inconvenient. And if you've got an inconvenient fact, it's better to look away from it, they think. But I, thought, I think the way to solve a problem is to look at, at the facts. And there are some inconvenient facts about opioids, which are that these addicts are uh, people that have really hard lives, hard, hard lives. Um, real wages in America for working people haven't risen in, in 40 years. Uh, a lot of industries disappeared. These people got nothing to do. They quickly become addicted. And the fact that we're not facing is that for a lot of these people, that opioid high is the best feeling they've ever had in their life. And so until we tackle that, we're not going to solve the problem. Scolding them is not going to do it. We've got to remove the need instead of attacking the actual drug. So you've now dabbled with, if you like, you know, these real sort of, if you like, almost campaign issues, real-life mm. issues. I'm wondering how that sits next to the escapism of Reacher, you know, the, the, the guy who lands the punch that we want to land. How, how do you sort of configure those two? And do you think that's taking you now in a new direction for past tense? It might do, yeah. You know, I never make a plan. I never have an idea of what the next book's going to be about, so I can't say it's a new direction, but... I think the great thing about Reacher, and thankfully he sells really well in America, is that I can use him to introduce little thoughts and suggestions. Mm. That Because uh, he's very bipartisan, Reacher. He's, I'm sure that 50% of my readership are Trump voters. And if I can whisper in their ear, what about this, what about that, then I think Don't that's they call a really that subliminal. Good yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, well, are you? Uh, will there be sort of gun legislation, or well, would the, you, I, how far I, would you go? I've done that in previous books. You know, Richard says, "Never tell a soldier that guns are fun," um, and he makes the point. You know, car do carpenters get sexually excited about a Black and Decker electric drill? Not really. You know, so why do people get so turned on by guns? This is another thing that America is not facing. Yeah. Um, one more thought. In, when you're taking on the sort of forensics, do you, does that fascinate you? Do you sort of want to be the scientist at that point? Yeah, I love that. I, I, I absolutely love the forensics. And, uh, you know, um, Sue Black was yes. supposed to be, couldn't get down because of the snow. 
And I, I read her book and absolutely loved it. Because... Sue Black was going to be joining us, uh, but from Aberdeen, sadly, she couldn't find yeah. it. She's a, a forensic anthropologist, isn't yeah, she? Yeah, written a brilliant book about, about life and death, which it, it really chimes in with what Risha says. I mean, hers is a book-length thing. Risha yeah. would say, shit happens, get over it. <laughs> yeah. That's what she's saying, basically. And it's, it's a terrific book. And I love the detail. And there was a... I, I had a thing with Sue a, a while ago where she, they were making a new mortuary up there in, right. in Aberdeen because they found this new technique and it required a building and they needed a, a million pounds. And the idea was that all our readers would vote for the name on the, on the mortuary, um, you know, which author would produce the, the, the most number of donations. And I was really keen to help, but I did not want to win because then it would have had to be called the Child Mortuary. <laughs> Which would not have been a good idea. <laughs> we wouldn't have found some sort of alternative, yeah, um, uh, you know, what was that one, the boat called? You know, oh, yeah, Boaty uh, McBoatface. Boaty McBoatface, yeah, Morty McMorty. Oh, gosh, I won't go there. Um, that sounds terrible, but Lee, a real pleasure to talk yeah, to you. Lovely. And best Thank of you. luck with Fast Tense. We look forward to it. Thank you. Yeah.